Well, good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks, and I serve as the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. I uh, Just a brief note before we begin into our passage. Uh, for those of you who might be having trouble following my English as I preach this sermon, the manuscript for my sermon is found... Uh, at the link that is at the bottom of page eight in your bulletin. If you'd like to download that manuscript and follow along, I promise that I will preach relatively close to the manuscript. Sometimes I like to tell you other things that aren't in the manuscript, but that might be of help to you. It is easy to say God is in control. But it's much harder to really believe it when we're facing death or disaster or huge difficulties in our life. God promised salvation and rescue to the Israelites, for example, when they were slaves in Egypt back as described in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. He promised that he would rescue them. And when he did bring them out, he brought them out to the banks of the Red Sea. And there they stood with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army chasing them from behind. They doubted. And they cried out anticipating their own death. But the Lord had made a promise and he kept it. The Red Sea parted. They walked through on dry land and the water rushed back over Pharaoh's army, drowning all of them, destroying them. They were saved. They reached the shore. In today's passage, we find Paul and 275 additional souls, people on a ship facing certain death. Was God in control? Well, he was, but they needed to listen to the man of God that was with them with a message of salvation and rescue. They needed to believe. They needed to have faith. God had put it in Paul's heart and in his mind to leave Ephesus and travel back to Jerusalem and from there to set out for Rome. Rome was farther from Jerusalem than Paul had ever been. It represented the capital of the Gentile world. It was the gateway, you could say, to the ends of the earth. But Jerusalem had not simply been a short stopover on the way to Rome for Paul. Going through Jerusalem had resulted in Paul being attacked, put on trial, and eventually imprisoned for two whole years in Caesarea. It might have seemed like the trip to Rome was off. But God works out his purposes and his plans for us, oftentimes over long periods of time. And his plans don't often look like the plans that we would make for ourselves. And so it was true of Paul as well. And so now, as we have reached to chapter 27, 
in the book of Acts. Paul has gone through five trials before an angry Jewish crowd in Jerusalem. He stood trial before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. He's stood trial before two Roman governors. And finally, he stood trial before the Herodian king of Israel. And Paul has appealed to Caesar, the greatest leader in the known world. And therefore, he's going to be taken in chains, not what he expected, to Rome. Just as the Lord promised him in prison, take courage. You must testify also in Rome. We're going to be following Paul's journey to Rome by ship across the Mediterranean and the Adriatic Sea this afternoon. And you can see that path that he took on the map that's on page 12 in your bulletin. Turn with me for just a moment, just to get a little overview and preview of where Paul is going to be traveling in today's passage. You can see there on page 12, if you look over on the right side of the map, you can see Caesarea on the coast of Israel. And that's where Paul begins his journey in chapter 27. And he followed the dark line up and across the southern coast there of Pamphylia and Cilicia. Paul then makes it down by ship to south of uh, Crete, the southern coast of Crete, to a place there you can see labeled Fair Havens. And then their ship takes off across the Adriatic Sea. And you see where those squiggly lines are. We're going to encounter a terrible storm. But finally, they arrive on the island of Malta. Well, that's the trip that we're going to take in 27. The rest of that dark line will take next week, next week in the afternoon, when we look at Acts 28, which is the last chapter in the book of Acts. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles then to Acts 27. Acts 27, if you have one of the Bibles that was handed out by uh, at the beginning of the service that Mark uh, told you to raise your hand for. You can turn to page 545, 545, that's the page number in those Bibles. Acts 27 is where we are. And we're gonna be reading the entire passage. Follow along with me. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of a Dramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinitus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off 
Salmone. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of La Silla. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. <clears throat> now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. And then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. 
and then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. And so they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. It is the very life to us. We pray, Father, that you would teach us from it today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. More than anything, I want you to come to the conclusion after we've studied this passage today that you should all the more trust God's promises of deliverance for accomplishing his gospel purposes. Trust God's promises for deliverance for accomplishing his gospel purposes. The sermon this afternoon is going to have three points in the outline, and they basically summarize three different sections of this exciting narrative. The first is stormy seas. The second is salvation promises. And the third is safely landed. Stormy seas, salvation promises, and safely landed. First, the stormy seas. And we see that in verses 1 through 20. Chapter 27 begins with Paul and some of the other prisoners there in Caesarea being assigned to be escorted by this centurion named Julius, along with some of the soldiers under his command. Paul is put on board a ship along with the other prisoners, and we know that Aristarchus, one of Paul's traveling companions, was taken along. And we know that Luke, who wrote the story, because this is an eyewitness account, was on board as well. They traveled there from Caesarea by ship up the coast to Sidon, where Paul was allowed to visit friends from that city, presumably church members from the church in Sidon. And from there, they made their way north of the island of Cyprus. Now, the text here says, under the lee of Cyprus. The lee is a nautical term that means on the side of the island that's sheltered from the wind. And I want you to know that I'm not going to explain every single nautical term that we come to in this text. You can come and ask me about them afterward if they confuse you. Well, from there, they sailed along the southern coast of Asia, where they then landed at Myra. They boarded another boat that was this one bound for Rome. 
And with difficulty, then, difficulty in sailing, that is, they arrived in the port city of Fairhaven, which was on the southern coast of the island of Crete. Now, Paul had been on many journeys by ship in his missionary travels. He was an experienced journeyer by ship. And, and so because, perhaps because of his experience, he foresaw great danger if they were to try and continue on. It was the time of year when the seas would become very stormy. And so in verse 10, he warns the captain and the centurion that if they continued to try and sail on, they would lose their lives at sea. It was a terrible decision when they ignored his advice and they decided to press on just to try to go an additional maybe 60 kilometers down the coast of Crete to get to a port that was called Phoenix. But they never made it. They were blown out to sea and they were then caught in a violent storm for many, many days. And there in verses 14 through 19 in that paragraph, it describes all the desperate measures that the crew began to take to avoid the ship being destroyed by this storm. That's how bad it was. The last verse in this section describes how terrible their situation was. Look there with me at verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This terrible storm had gone on for days and days and days. I don't know about you, but I've never been in a storm that lasted more than an afternoon, perhaps. But this storm, a storm on the sea, can do that. It can last for days, even weeks. And that's the case with this particular storm. It lasted, it went on and on, and those constant clouds in the skies blocked all view of the sun and the stars which were their only means of navigating, knowing where they were going. They had no idea where they were then at this point in the story, no hope of being saved from the storm. They were convinced they were gonna die. And think of all the times that the apostle Paul had faced death up until this point in his life. He had been beaten multiple times, he had been stoned, He'd been chased after one city, after another city. He'd been attacked in the streets of Jerusalem and barely rescued by Roman soldiers, only to then narrowly avoid murderous plots against him. The Lord could have ordained Paul's death in any one of those situations. How long we live and when we will die is the Lord's decision. Two days ago, October 6th, was the 485th anniversary of William Tyndale's execution. He was an English church leader and he was responsible primarily for translating the Bible into the common language of ordinary people during a time in England and really throughout Europe when the Roman Catholic Church forbade the Bible from being translated into a language that people could actually read for themselves. It was illegal, punishable by death. 
Because of William Tyndale, thousands of copies of the Bible made it into the hands of common people to read for themselves the promises of God. He was 42 years old when he was executed. He was publicly strangled and then his body was burned at the stake. Think of how much more God could have accomplished through William Tyndale's life if he had saved him and not let him be executed in that way at the age of 42. But the Lord had determined the number of days for William Tyndale. And they were up 485 years ago, plus two days. Job 14.5 says, A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. Unless the Lord comes again, all people, including Christians, will die. God doesn't promise that we will avoid death, but he does promise that we will not stay dead. He promises resurrection and eternal life for those who have repented and trusted in Christ. Paul and his companions, along with the rest of the ship, were facing almost certain death as the storm battered their ship. And some of us may face death sooner than we think. Whether it's cancer or a car wreck or some other kind of unexpected tragedy, it's those possibilities that mean we must rely on the truth that nothing will end our lives before the days that the Lord has determined for us run out. And the Lord has determined also that should we die, he will raise us to everlasting life with himself. You will likely face hopeless situations at some point in your life. But do you have the hope that the Lord is with you in it? That the Lord won't leave you and that the Lord won't abandon you even in death? Do you have that hope? Have you trusted in Christ? For those of you who are not Christians, this is the first hope to trust in. That Christ was the Son of God and that he went to the cross and died an undeserving death to enable us to be forgiven of our sins because he had taken the penalty for us. Do you, have you trusted in Christ, the risen Savior, and the first to be raised from the dead? Now is the time to decide that you trust in Christ and in God's providential care for you. Even those of you who are brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter what comes your way. Don't wait until the day of trouble to affirm your trust in God's care of you, even in death. Paul had that kind of hope. But in this situation, Paul had an even more specific hope that this storm wouldn't be the end of his life or the lives of anyone on that ship for that matter. The Lord had given him specific promises of salvation from this storm. And that's the second point this afternoon that we see revealed in verses 21 through 38. Salvation promises. Salvation promises. 
At this point in the story, the Lord elevates Paul as a leader on the ship and his leadership shows up in three different separate times when Paul has a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation, a word of instruction, even simple care for those who are on this ship with him. Since he was converted to Christ, Paul had become God's man with God's message of salvation, specifically for the Gentiles in the world. And this situation is no different. In this story, the Lord continued to use Paul in that very way. Because of the storm, no one on board the ship had been able to eat anything for days. They had been busy trying to steer the ship, keep it from breaking apart. And without food, of course, their energy and their spirits have sunk to a very, very low point. And it was at just that point that Paul stood and shared a message from the Lord with them, a message of hope. Look there with me at verses 21 through 26. It's worth reading again. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. The Lord's purposes for Paul would be fulfilled and the Lord would make sure that it happened. He was to stand before Caesar. It was God's plan for Paul that he finally get to Rome. And not only that, but the Lord had granted Paul the lives of everyone on board. No one was going to die, the angel had told him. Could it be that Paul had been praying for every single life to be saved on that ship? We're not told in the text, but you know, knowing Paul, I think he was. But it wasn't exactly clear how they would be saved. Because in verses 27 through 32, it describes the 14th night of this storm and the second crucial intervention by Paul. The sailors began checking the depth of the water. That's what it means when they took soundings. And as they took those soundings, it was apparent that they were getting, it was getting more and more shallow, the water that they were sailing in, which meant that they were likely approaching the shore of some type of land. But they couldn't see the land because it was still dark. Day had not come. And at that point, the sailors feared that the ship would be broken up on rocks that guarded whatever land they were approaching. And so they pretended to lower, go down and lower anchors there at the bow, but instead they were lowering the ship's lifeboat. That's what it says, that's what it means when it says the ship's boat. And they were trying to flee the boat on their own in that small lifeboat. But Paul was alerted to what they were doing. And so he spoke to the centurion and his soldiers there in verse 31. And he said to the centurion, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. 
And so the soldiers cut away that lifeboat and prevented the sailors from escaping on it. Now you may be wondering to yourself, why would Paul need to prevent the sailors from escaping the ship if God had promised that everyone was going to be saved? It is true that God is sovereign in the world. He rules over everything. The providence of God is his moment by moment control over everyone and everything. But God's providential control in the world is not separate from our decisions and our actions. No, rather God's providence includes our decisions and our actions. And so we don't just do what some people say when they say, I need to let go and let God. No, even as we trust in God's sovereign control, we make wise decisions. We take action. Our decisions matter. And God is often working through them and through us in our choices. So Paul could trust with absolute certainty that the Lord would save the entire crew of the ship and also find it necessary to alert the soldiers to the escaping sailors to keep them from leaving. Verse 33 through 38 then describe a third intervention by Paul. And this was both a loving act of care and kindness and a second word of encouragement to trust God's promise of salvation. Look with me there beginning at verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food for it will give you strength for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Do you see Paul, the pastor, looking out for the good even of his fellow prisoners and, and the soldiers who held him captive in chains and everyone else on board for that matter? Sometimes it's the simplest acts of kindness that communicate the most love. Paul brought out the bread and right there in the midst of that terrible storm, it's still going on, mind you, he prayed a prayer thanking God for the food that they were about to eat. And they were all encouraged. They took heart. Can you find things to give thanks to God for in the middle of your worst trials and tribulations? To do so seems like such a simple thing. Maybe it feels like it's not important. And yet it is a powerful witness that you believe that God is good when things seem bad. And that you can trust him with your life no matter what's going on. If you're in the middle of a season of difficulties or loss, give thanks to God for all his goodness in spite of your circumstances. To do so is a powerful declaration of your faith in him. It will leave you and the others around you encouraged. Along with that small but significant act of kindness in leadership from 
Paul, Paul added a reminder of God's promise of salvation from the storm. You know, he's essentially saying to them, remember the promise that I told you the other night. You will not perish. Don't give up. It was still dark outside, though the dawn was coming shortly and the storm had still not passed. They were still in danger. They needed to press on until God's promise of salvation was assured. Verses 39 through 44 then describe to us how the Lord's plan of salvation for the ship's passengers comes true. Safely landed. That's the third point this afternoon. Safely landed. When it became day, the storm was still raging, but they could see the land. There was a bay and a beach. But before they could make it to the beach, the ship struck a coral reef that was off a long ways from the beach. The front of the ship was stuck and the storm and the waves began to break up the rear of the ship. Finally, the ship was coming apart. They were so close, but they were still so far from safety. And again, some on board lost hope. Who was it this time? It was the soldiers. Verse 44, 42, excuse me, tells us that the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners. You see, Roman soldiers knew that if they were guarding prisoners and they escaped, the punishment for them as soldiers would be execution. Even in the midst of a storm and dire circumstances like this. Better to kill the prisoners in this case. Once again, the Lord was working out his purposes of salvation. And in this case, he put it into the heart of the centurion named Julius to prevent the prisoners from being executed. Verse 43, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. God can work even through the decisions and the actions of those who are not Christians. It doesn't mean that they have saving faith or forgiveness for their sins. But if God is sovereign in the world and the scriptures are clear, they say over and over again that God works in every person's life, regardless of whether they know him or not. It must be so that God works in non-Christians lives. This is one of the reasons why we pray for government officials and leaders in this country. Did you hear in Mark's pastoral prayer earlier in the service that he prayed for the Dubai prosecutors? He prayed for them that they would carry out their job so that evil is restrained in the country. And that there's peace and calm that laws are abided by. That's one of the reasons why we pray for them. And Mark even referred to 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, where it says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We, of course, certainly want to pray for everyone's salvation. We pray for that as well. But we're also praying that even if people in positions of leadership and power don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, that the Lord will work through them for the common good of all, especially 
God's people, us. Instead of the prisoners being killed, the centurion ordered everyone into the water to try and make it to the shore. 276 people, this is a large ship, many of whom probably couldn't swim. Even at this point, there could have been great loss of life. They were perhaps hundreds of meters away from the beach. The water was still deep where they were in all likelihood, but the last sentence affirms, confirms what Paul said and believed would happen from the moment that the angel promised safety. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The Lord had kept his promise. Joanne and I are reading through Joshua in our daily Bible reading times together. And uh, I hope that you're doing that no matter what passages in scripture you're in and maybe you think I'm reading through something boring, I don't understand it. When is this gonna be of use to me? I just wanna encourage you to keep reading and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to use what you read, maybe not that day, but another time at some point in your life Oftentimes I find that I'll be reading something in scripture that ties to or connects to another part of scripture that someone has shared with me or maybe I've heard in a sermon just days before that. And it gives me greater understanding. I mean, it was that case this week. We were in the midst of pages and pages of geography and descriptions of the names of tribal heads and leaders in Israel. Uh, you know, it seemed it was difficult to pronounce everything wasn't sure what it was. And then we stumbled on this paragraph, the end of chapter 20 in Joshua. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. They had all made it safely to land in this dramatic conclusion in our passage. And brothers and sisters, that is the story of the whole Bible. That the Lord makes promises and he keeps promises of deliverance for his people. And his greatest promise is a promise of salvation. It will come to pass. Did you notice that nowhere in this dramatic and detailed account does anyone become a Christian? It's a little bit unusual for all the stories of Paul, all of Paul's life that we've read about. Everywhere he goes, he leads people to Christ. We've read countless sermons that he's preached. It's not here in this passage. Of course, Paul testifies that he has faith in God. But there's no presentation of the gospel, no mention of Christ's sinless life, not his death on the cross, not his resurrection. There's no conversions that we're told about. Why would Luke write so much about this storm and this shipwreck? So much detail? First of all, this account is a powerful testimony to the Lord's
providential care of Paul, his apostle to the Gentiles. From the moment that God, well, from the moment that Paul was born, and especially from the moment that God called Paul to himself on that road to Damascus, God was guiding Paul's life. J.I. Packer says this about the providence of God in his book, Concise Theology. Providence is God's work according to his will to keep all creatures in being, involve himself in all events, and direct all things to their appointed end. He goes on to say, God is completely in charge of his world. His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. God is in charge. God told Paul at least two times through direct revelation that he would get to Rome and stand before Caesar. And this shipwreck story confirms that God is the one who is paving the way for Paul. He's sending Paul where he wants him to go, no matter what. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told the disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Not, I hope you will be or try your best to be witnesses. No, he said, you will be my witnesses. Jesus was assuring it. Paul is God's chosen man to be his witness in Rome, which represented the gateway to the end of the earth, which is where the gospel was going and where the gospel is going still. You and I will likely not have direct and specific revelation of what God's purposes for us in this life are. But make no mistake, if you've trusted in Christ, God has purposes for you that he will work out in your life. He's doing it right now. He's just as providentially in control of your life as he was in control of Paul's life. You and I don't need an angel to tell us what those purposes are. It's described in his word, in the scriptures, what God's will for your life is. Brothers and sisters, I exhort you to trust God's promise of salvation found in the gospel. And not only that, but also his promise that if he, if he saved you, he has saved you in order for you to fulfill his div divine purposes in the world. Are you pursuing his gospel purposes for your life above all? If you're not, if you're not sure what those purposes are, well, ask him to make it clear as you read his word as you sit under gospel preaching, as you meet with one another throughout the week to encourage and build one another up, I think you'll find in his word purposes for you like to become more holy, to be a bold witness for him, to bring glory to him in everything that you do 
and say and think. Those are God's purposes for you. But I think there's even more to know about the reason Luke included this account here at the end, the book of Acts. Even though no one seems to have repented and believed the gospel, this whole story, I think, serves as a parable of the gospel. Let me describe this true story in broad general terms. Unbelievers make bad decisions that will lead to their death. But the Lord in his mercy has put a man among them who has a message of hope and salvation if they will simply trust the God who gave this message. Apart from the promise, they would die. But as they believe and listen to him, they are saved. All were brought safely to land. It's a story of salvation, isn't it? Physical salvation. But I think a parable of the gospel. Do you recognize the good news of Jesus Christ in that outline? Do you see it? We've all chosen to disobey the Lord who made us. We've all chosen to set out into treacherous seas of disobedience and sin, ignoring God essentially becoming our own gods. And with that, we are headed for certain death. In fact, that death will be the wrath of God himself because that's what we're owed for our selfish, prideful decision to live as our own God. But God in his mercy and kindness has sent his son with a message of hope Salvation can be ours. Forgiveness can be ours. Everlasting life can be ours. We can reach the shore of God's new heavens and new earth if we believe the message of Christ and in Christ himself. Unlike anyone before him or anyone after him, Christ earned the place of honor and kingship. He had no sin, and yet he paid the price for ours. And since he was the one who was raised to everlasting life and honor, so will anyone who clings to him in faith. Salvation doesn't come to us because of any good decision of ours, but because of God's favor shown to his man, his son, the Lord Jesus. We're saved by grace, simply by repenting of our sin and trusting in him. If we do, we will be brought safely, safely to him. Oh, brothers and sisters, are you trusting in the promises of God for deliverance in order for you, as you walk through this life towards the new heavens and the new earth to fulfill God's purposes in this world? That's exactly what Paul was doing. And that's exactly what he saved us for. Let's pray.